Welcome to Season 4 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's festival of ideas since 1997. Thank you for supporting authors and booksellers and each other. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation between Peter Schneider, manager of the Public Lending Right Program, and Nabin Ruthnam. Nabin is the author of the nonfiction book, Curry, Eating, Reading, and Race, and a novella, Help Meet, as well as two thrillers under the pseudonym Nathan Ripley. They spoke about Nabin's novel, A Hero of Our Time, an acerbic takedown of superficial diversity initiatives and tech culture. Here's their conversation. I just want to ease in by asking you about publishing a novel and writing, ironically, in times right now that feel like they're they're not exactly the friendliest in terms of irony, in terms of our social climate, in terms of the ability for folks to process uh, things such as social satire or irony, and especially given some of the the subject matter that that surrounds the book, uh, the earnestness that's in the air, if you will, around this 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 social mission of tech companies and educational initiatives. Um, can you maybe can we talk about publishing this book in 2022 and the pathway to to creating this this book, which is in many ways uh, challenging for a reader because of the the elements of irony and satire that are in the book? I think it's, it's sort of like narrow and choked and, and strangled as those as those discussions can seem, especially on social media, but also in real life there's still space in fiction for people to be really open to ironic treatments, to like, to a bit of acid in their satire. So, and that's actually a large part of the reason why I did choose to write this novelist because, you know, there was a lot of things that I wanted to discuss and explore for myself, find out what I thought of in terms of, you know, the earnestness of diversity initiatives, for example. And I didn't really know how to do it in an, in an expansive, proper way in nonfiction. I, I just didn't know that how to do that. But I thought that doing it through comedy and fiction would allow me to sort of both find out what I thought and say some, you know, dangerous things, perhaps. The, the novel's title for some will be a tip-off or a clue, uh, a hero for our time. And the centrality of a male protagonist who's the hero of the book but who is not a romantic hero. Uh, the Osman in, in, in your novel, who's the, the, the narrator, the central character in the book, is very much a contemporary 21st century male with all of the neuroses and tics that come with being alive in the early part of the 21st century. Um, as a character or as a central figure, um, He's incredibly vulnerable and incredibly astute and self-aware, almost painfully so. Um, tell me about creating this character and about entering the novel with such a with such a strong voice uh, with this character. Yeah, um, obviously the, the the title is borrowed from Lermontov and Pechorin, the romantic hero in that, who is really not such a hero at all. But I, I did want to have somebody who, you know, is brutally self-ironizing as he is and as um penetrating and cruel his insights can be into himself is still fueled by the sort of um 
ego-driven commitment to his idea of righteousness, very ironically, because that's what he sort of crusades against um, in other characters in the book. But I also wanted to have it be a novel that would work for someone who wasn't at all engaged in social matters in the 21st century. For example, like somebody who, you know, is already out of the workforce, doesn't have to contend with sort of the wave of tech washing over higher education and what it's doing to the working careers of artists. Someone who wasn't engaged in any of those topics at all, I still wanted them to find something fascinating in this character. And I think you you do get that hopefully through his um, attempts to connect romantically with Nana, his, his coworker, and his, mm-hmm. his attempts to sort of reconcile what he actually thinks of himself as a person of color in, in the West and whatever connection he has to his past as incarnated by his parents. And I really wanted him to be the most... Um, sort of self-artificing, self-building character in in a book of characters where virtually everybody is building some sort of false story for themselves, while you still see a sort of genuine person in there wriggling around. What startled me and what I had perhaps a challenge with at first was just how cruel people were to each other. In, in the professional setting, how competitive people are uh, in, in the contemporary work, workforce, it resonates, um, but it was, it was startling because we don't often see this kind of milieu foregrounded in Canadian fiction. Um, there's, there's something that is so contemporary about the, the pressures on, on young professionals and on people who are adult, who are very well-educated, who are very well-traveled and sophisticated, but who in many ways are still forming. They're still young people. Um, and the, the, the illusions of social media and the, the self-doubts that creep in about identity, um, about uh, manner, matters of loyalty, of, of integrity and authenticity um, are throughout the book. And for me, uh, once I entered in and was able to get into the tone of the book, um, things began to become much richer and much more human. Um, that's, that's something that I suppose I I just want to put out there with uh, a question about this close observation in the novel of our generational culture, uh, of the world that surrounds us now. Yeah. I, my hope is that the humor makes that entry into the novel more palatable, that hopefully there's enough of this sort of stinging jokiness to, to push through the, as you say, like often quite vicious and and competitive um, sphere here. But I mean, I really do see not just this generation or the younger generation or the older generation, um, but every generation as being largely defined and fueled by this sort of brutal lust for power, whether it's disguised or not. And you may not see it in many Canadian novels, but you see it often in, you know, the gentlest of, of poetry circles and Mm then the, the gentlest of, um, you know, high literary fiction circles, places where there isn't really much power to be had, but you Mm -hmm. still see this sort of amongst the people there often either a total disengagement from all this and just an interest in their art or, or this real desire to be at the peak of something that doesn't really necessarily exist anymore. Mm -hmm. A sense of being the most prestigious of being the most recognized of being, you know, the most virtuous and the greatest of having one's greatness recognized. And 
seeing that in the cor- corporate sphere, that's very easy. We we see that all the time. And um, but that's certainly not something that we that is absent from the politics or corporate culture of you know 1965 or of 1865. It's it's always been there. And it is also it's I, I just find if there's anything unique about this particular era, it's the degree to which the the quest for personal power is disguised as as um an elevation of the collective or sort of a facing of the self in favor of raising others up. But in so many of these cases, if you just, you know, scratch that lottery ticket foil off a little bit more, you see, of course, this person is only concerned with how high they can rise, how much money they can make, how much they will ultimately be recognized as the best. The the characters in, in the novel who are, connecting or trying to connect or having relationships one of the one of the experiences in the book that is throughout is this protection of of some kind of core and a fear of genuine intimacy if i can say it that way mm-hmm. yeah a fear or sort of an inability to achieve genuine intimacy like in osmond's case very bluntly like he can't he can't have sex with, with, with Nana, who he's completely in love with and who is much more accepting of him than he can even imagine she is. Like he could not imagine her accepting him. And, you know, I, I did want that to be a completely, you know, psychological impotence. And it's, it's the most bluntly drawn cannot connect relationship in that novel. But as you see, there's, there's a suggestion of other relationships that do have genuine connection in them that do work, but because we're so locked into the sort of chamber of Osman's perceptions and we're so in his skull, we don't realize that perhaps, especially towards the end of the book, that Nina and Olivia may have a very deep connection that one is that's sort of um, I wouldn't say beyond words, but one that is is really profound and there's a sense that it might be renewed again. And there's a sense that there's so much more possibility to those two characters than Osman, even by the end of the novel, can can imagine. I think for me, by the end of, of the novel, what I, what I came away with an appreciation or a sense of is that no one gets through this world unscarred or unscathed, whether you have money, whether you have power or prestige, or you are viewed as being successful. Um, there's a price or a cost that people pay for, for, for being in the world and for participating in the systems that we have. Mm-hmm. And ma- many of those systems are not of their own choice. Um, and that everyone is, is in one way or another flawed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I think that's... I think Oswin would also agree with that, my, my central character, if he had the um, sort of philosophical distance from, from where he ends up at the end of the book to really see that. But in, in, in another way, I think it suggests, the novel suggests in a very, you know, dark way that for a certain type of person, complete isolation would actually be paradise, would actually be the closest he or she could achieve to actual happiness on earth. And that's someone who's, um, you know, either being walled out or walled themselves out so, so effectively and spent so much time in forging sort of an avatar of themselves in the world that their closest chance to, to live sort of an authentic existence, to use a, an, an overused current term, is to actually find that existence 
while at a complete remove from society. So there's actually something of this sort of um, ascetic uh, traditional Hindu retreat in, in what he does at the end there, which I don't think he sees himself, but and certainly has nothing to do with his own cultural or religious um, being, but it does happen to be a part of his heritage. Time and time again, as I read the book, and I reread passages in the book, what, what struck me and what really, quite frankly, blew me away were sentences or phrases of close observation, you know, using simile, using metaphor, where quotidian objects, everyday things in hotel rooms or in bars, things that people were eating, things that people were seeing or wearing, were brought just vividly to life on the page in, in forms of comparison or illumination that I found really rare. Um, it's, I think, connected to your skill as a cultural critic, as someone who notices, as someone who's able uh, to bring things to people's attention. Um, can you maybe talk about your writing process and about some of those gems of perception that are in the narrative? Yeah, I mean, for it differs depending on what I'm writing, of course. But I think for this, I mean... The, the writing process of this, if I can say, is, was very internal. I wasn't really, um, the objects I, that you see in the book were objects imagined by me, if, if I can say that. Like I wouldn't um, sort of go on an observation-oriented quest, sort of put a hotel room together or find a way to connect objects to the characters in this, to the themes in this. It was very much a, it, it came, it was, it was an outgrowth of Osman's character too, as someone who becomes increasingly object focused. You see in his, he's a book collector, but he can't read anymore. For example, I, I thought of this as a person who the surfaces and textures around him, which also include his own body, which he feels mm -hmm. completely distanced from would achieve this really vivid hyper reality as he, as his job is, you know, entirely digital and as his, sort of fantasies of revenge are completely imaginary, the objects around him take on this increasing, you know, huge weight. If, you know, if we were to talk or imagine like this as being sort of like the, you know, a continuation of this long sort of neoliberal moment where we have beautiful spaces that are also completely sanitized and completely generic. So hotel bars, airport lobbies, um, uh, clothing, um, that there's sort of a, a, a sort of a, a global vocabulary that people who are educated and in professional roles recognize in one another in terms of the sociology. And at the same time, there's a sterility to it. And I think that's one of the things in Osmond's experience is there's a sense of really close observation, but also this growing sense of alienation from what is, what is, and what isn't real. Yeah. I think also, yeah. And to add to that, he, there's a sense, and this was drawn from experience from jobs I've had in the past of being around such extremes of wealth that you yourself don't possess, but are treated very casually by those who do have access to that wealth or whose livings are based on being around people at that level of success and wealth. Um, that can lead to that, not just a sense of sterility, but a sense that the world around you does not belong to you in any no notable way. So again, just as he's very distant from his body, the very environments he's able to move around in due to the an expense account that he has because he's a person of value to a company very briefly. 
it, none of it is his. <laughs> he doesn't inhabit it at all, which is why I think you, as as the novel sort of, you know, circles the drain as as his as his quest um, comes to a close, his childhood home, his family home, becomes increasingly important as a sort of location, a bit of territory, something that could really be his, but not just his. It's not just about possession of a property. It's about being in a space that you can recognize as real. And in his case, that means being in a place that he knows belongs to him. Mm-hmm. In in your writing and in the evocation of, of Osman and other characters, there are frequently, you know, m- references and, and, and mentions of bodily flaws, bodily odors, viscera, like that we are like living, messy humans, like we are people. And that's something that is frequently airbrushed out of uh, literary fiction um, and out of out of our view of one another and of the world as we look at each other through Instagram filters. Like that, the what we consider to be, quote unquote, the ugly stuff of life is actually the the, you know, the, the essence of life, all of the bodily fluids that keep us going. Um, do you have an awareness as a writer of wanting to keep it real by, by introducing those elements uh, into, into the fiction, into, into the narrative? And at any point, did an editor or a reader say, oh, gross? <laughs> this, I mean, Osmond's perceptions of his own body are almost like a reverse Instagram filter. They're like an Instagram death ray in that his, his perceptions of, of how grotesque his body is are inflated like it's and i feel like that as it piles up as it goes on in the novel mm-hmm. one has a sense you know very opposite to you know if you look at a perfectly airbrushed image of a model like well nobody can be that perfect and in this case in the novel it's like nobody can be this this obscene unless it's to themselves which i think is something that immediately resonates with a lot of readers where they they know that their their perception of their own lack of standard beauty or their own lack of standard perfection becomes very exaggerated and over the top. Like one's inner monologue about how one looks, how one is in the world tends to be more critical than anybody else's and tends to be very different from the actual physical reality of your existence in the world. But it also does provide a strange grounding reality as, as exaggerated and over the top as it is um, to, to the book. And, but I think it also does, it leads it's not such a, I wouldn't call it a turnoff to readers because of how um, gross it is. I find, I find a lot of readers are sort of chilled by how, how grim it would be to have that ongoing perception of yourself as being utterly grotesque. And it's also something that's very out of step with um, sort of positive leaning, diverse writing where it tend, when the, when the character in that novel is flawed and human, it tends to be in a way that's delivered to the reader to say, actually, this person is is perfect and and all they are. And it's the society around them that doesn't recognize their perfection and is causing them to feel this way about themselves. Um, I, I, I look at that as Osman's like violent humanity, like the best the the best parts of him, I think, are the parts that that actually could connect to other people. And in his case, those manifest as extreme self-criticism. And I, I think that's both bizarre and also, you know, as Kirk said about Spock, you know, extremely human. Mm-hmm. The, this, these, these things that seem to make him um, a monster in his own eyes are the, are the parts that I think 
I recognize the most of myself. You're listening to Writers Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. As I, as I read the book, as I reflected on some of your other writings, and uh, particularly the, the, the essay that was published with Coach House a few years ago, and we've spoken about that in person before, about, about Curry, the experience of Canadians who come from other cultures or countries who are not a, of Northern European descent, and the hyper-awareness of the desire to fit in and be accepted, and things such as... Um, do, do my clothes smell like the food that I eat, right? Am, am, I, am I passing? Am I accepted? Do I belong? I find that there's a poignancy and an echo of that because it's so deeply embedded at the level of consciousness. And there are passages in the book where you write movingly about older figures, uh, previous generations, actually expunging those, those fragrances and, and that sense of humanity from themselves, right? Consciously. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that actually, I mean, as with, Curry, my long essay, a lot of it was actually pointing at um, the artifice of a lot of that, the artifice and also the sort of strange, sinister angle to the narrative, the what's often called on the internet now stinky lunch stories of like, of the, mm-hmm. you know, why do I have a mango instead of an apple? Why can't I have a sandwich like anyone else? Story. I mean, we've, we've read these so many times and they continue to be produced, but yeah. in recent in the in more recent years, since I've written Curry, I see in you know more and more interviews with you know comedians, actors, writers of color. There's there's this idea that I mean, of course, when I was younger, I was ashamed of my race in, in all these different aspects. Um, but you know, I, I really never was, I, and and I find it almost it's a strangely alienating thing to be reading more writing or more like a sort of writing adjacent material interviews, basically with South Asian writers who all sides of the conversation seem to take it for granted that of course it's embarrassing to grow up uh, in a diverse, as a diverse person in a white culture. Um, And it's, it's always especially interesting to me when it's somebody who's from an urban center that is extremely diverse, who grew up, you know, say in like Scarborough or Brampton, whereas I grew up in Kelowna, which was, especially then, not at all diverse. And one thing I wanted to do in A Hero of Our Time is suggest, to an extreme degree, the idea that one can leave one's homeland utterly behind, and it isn't necessarily a moral flaw, nor is it something that makes the person forever not whole. And Mm -hmm. I think in, in, in the case of Osmond's parents, there are people who sort of, did a complete emigration in terms of like they they cut ties, familial ties, and in his father's case, as much as far as he could, um, cultural ties as well. Mm-hmm. He became what his imagination of what the perfect person would be, and I think to himself, he led a very successful, happy life. Um, I wanted to bring that up as a question um, because it's something again that is very out of step with um, modern diverse literature. I think it takes courage to be out of step 
And I think it also takes an honesty um, to want to move into, for any, for lack of a better term, more round conversations or deeper conversations and and reflections. I, I came away from the novel thinking at the end that everybody has a story, and whether that's really your story, we all have to have a story that we can provide or offer to someone once we figure out what they want us to be or how they want us to tell them who we are. I like that a lot. Yes, I think that's that's a big part of the ethos of this novel is, um, you know, I, I think our stories matter. That line is such a big part of um, diverse publishing in general. And not not only that, it's, it's a big part of a really important, like unironically, completely important story in society where, you know, different narratives are coming to the fore, where different people are allowed to speak for themselves now, where their stories aren't delivered by interpreters or or white writers. This is an unreservedly good thing, but my favorite writers are often, they're, they're playful, they're strange. You know, I'll, I'll pluck Nabokov uh, out, for example, um, who's also, you know, an emigre writer, a strange, mm-hmm. a strange Russian man who ends up in, 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 uh, in America. I feel that if we get too sincere, if we get too authentic, if we minimize what stories matter from people, to be frank, who are not white, what, what stories matter from them as being their real stories, their authentic stories, tell me about yourself, tell me the truth, then we've cut off our access to creating literary art in whichever way we want to. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that all too many writers are willing to sort of enter that shoot because it, it is the quickest way to, to um to recognition, to success, um, particularly in Canadian publishing, I think, is this recognition that like, this is an authentic story by a person of color that is deeply rooted in their own life and reflects societal realities that will educate me. And also I will feel things based on the experience of this other person. To me, almost none of what I just said there reflects what I want out of literature as a writer or a reader. So it was you know, literary fiction of all the kinds of writing I do, it's not going to be the most lucrative, lucrative thing I do. So Mm -hmm. if I, if I bring an aggressive purity to anything I do, it's going to be this. And yeah. And, you know, despite, despite my little screed just there, it is very important for the writing I do to be fun for me and to be interesting to me. And that's, that's why this is a comic novel. That's why there are moments of utter absurd silliness in this. And it's not, it isn't a screed. It's a, it's a work of art, hopefully. Whether it's good or bad, I will leave you to judge. You know, uh, publishing this novel with McClelland and Stewart, and I think back to novels that I've read and enjoyed in the last 20 years from the same publishing company that, to me, are, are proximate to this book. I think of the the early work of Trevor Cole with the the Astonishing Life of Norman Bray, which is about a, his father, who's a theater actor, who's demented. Um, but it's an it's a, again a very acidic you know social satire. It's it's not cuddly, um, it's not romantic. Um, Alan Cummins' book again about you know uh, in this case it's another book about dementia, but losing it, which is a family drama. Uh, and I think these books are important because um, they aren't swathed in sort of the soft focus um, diasporic gauze, if you will, and. Mm-hmm. 
Within this book, however, there is an arresting passage, a lovely and lyrical passage. And this is an excerpt from an unpublished manuscript that Osman as the son begins to delete, that he discovers that his father had written. But within that short passage, and you, you, you write an extract of, of this story, of this quasi-memoir, if you will, um, there is a lushness and a compression and a style that's completely transporting. And were you aware when you were writing that of just the power of those passages? It, it, that was so, um, that was, that's a weird part of the book because his yeah. fa Osmond's father is writing a false memoir, but it's also, I wanted it to come across as something that was actually better than something Osmond himself could write. And of course, Osmond is writing the novel you're reading as well. So yeah. I want the rest of the novel to be good as well, but I wanted that that section to have a sort of um it's it actually relates to my last answer too. Even though Osmond's father's lying about all these things that happened in the past, like this, this isn't how his sister died, this isn't how his childhood was, there is a sort of pure artistic sincerity to those passages that Osmond as a narrator and a writer isn't capable of. And so it was necessary to me. Like there's the question comes up when you're writing material that it, that the characters around it are uncomfortable with in the book do you do you make it deliberately funny do you make it deliberately light and flawed or do you try to write it really well and in this case i thought the most disturbing thing to osman would be the idea that not only did his father execute his life in such a while it may have been slightly easier for his generation in such a perfect way where he got everything he wanted and was able to do the exact work he wanted until he retired and then died. Um, and in addition to that, he also turns out to be a good artist. It's something that is, is just too far for, for Osman. He can't, he can't compute it and he, he won't allow it to exist, which is why when his father dies, it's, it's one of the most chilling parts of the book. I think it's where, it's the act of evil in the book. Um, to, to refer again to, to Nabokov, there's there's a part in uh, in Lolita where um, Humbert is getting a haircut and the barber's just blabbing on and on about his son. And it's only towards the end of the story that 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 uh, you know Humbert realizes that oh his son died in the war, his son's dead. Like he he doesn't care about other people. And it, somehow, even though it, it it clarifies exactly how disgusting of a person he is, how how, how evil he is because he isn't able to gloss up this moment in his romantic language as he is his violation of Lolita constantly. And in this case, I found that if you're someone who cares about books and literature, the, that moment where someone who supposedly cares so much about writing and art and people and justice is just deleting piece by piece, not just deleting the file, but actually yeah. going through the whole document and deleting it. That, that to me is an act of, um, aggressive destruction it's 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 shattering not an idol but but in an artwork a sculpture just to say aesthetically reading reading the book the use of different techniques the use of different frames um the ambiguity of characters in terms of of narration and um not having a conventional hero who's unflawed or who is to be on a pedestal and admired it demands something of the reader. And I think that's what I realized partway through the book that I had to go back and start over because I had to engage at a higher level. 
And it's not that the book is inaccessible. The book is gorgeous and it's, 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 it's compelling. And it's, it's, it's something that you can read um, in the course of a day and a half. It's not that, but it, it, it is a delight to be challenged as a reader um, to come in and to have to work some muscles that you don't normally have to work when you read commercial fiction or literary fiction these days. Thanks. Thank you for that. And uh, it was something that I was aware of beforehand. Like I have a lot of my, my colleagues and peers, like uh, Farn Parker, Martha Shabas, Michael LaPointe, um, really great writers who I admire, who, who I feel like work at that sort of upper level, uh, upper literary register. I, not in a hierarchical sense, but in that sense of this might be more challenging of an experience of the reader. Like you have to, you have to buy in here, invest a little more. It's not a story being delivered to you, but uh, a, 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 a work of literature that you have to enter and start interacting with fully from, from an early level. If you look at the Goodreads reviews of their books, they do not reflect the quality of, of how great those books are. And it's because they've found the wrong readers. Uh, you know, often, oftentimes, like you'll, or rather the Goodreads review reflects readers who don't want that experience. And a lot of readers don't want that experience. And, you know, I do respect that. And I write a lot of different kinds of books um, in order to have different audiences. But, and it remains, I have to admit, a bad feeling when someone reads one of my books and really doesn't enjoy it. Mm -hmm. It's not a bad feeling because I feel it has anything to do with the worth of my book. It's a bad feeling because that person spent so much time and invested hours of their life into something that they really would never have liked. That makes me feel bad. <laughs> but it's certainly when when someone reads it and it is exactly the thing for them, whether they have like a lot of critical issues with things that they didn't like about the book or not, but they enjoyed the investment of hours and they read it in the way that you need to read a book like this, which is, you know, as you said, with like just a little bit more investment, perhaps. I always love that. In talking about this book and in, in uh, being interviewed or uh, making appearances for this book, um, is there something that hasn't emerged thus far after after a while of having the book in the world that you'd like to talk about that that hasn't been asked or that someone has uh, has missed every time? Uh, well, uh, one thing. I mean, I don't think it would ever come up in an interview, but I, I remember my friend and colleague and and uh, co-writer frequently, Chris Burton, said that this is a book that a lot of the people who loved it the most would be the exact people that it was critiquing, and they wouldn't realize that. That, to me, is something kind of delightful about this book, because it is, you know, if I were, if I were putting on, like, my progressive like if if i were in, in somebody from like a government agency describing the worth of this book i would call it you know this is a progressive literary novel by um by a writer of color who's in, engaged in social issues a lot of the people who would first pick up that book whether they you know work in the industry or around the industry or care deeply about diversity um might feel themselves made fun of a bit in this book or might find like a lot of their deepest convictions about the sincerity of the of themselves and the people around them um were being deeply provoked at least by this book mm -hmm. that i think this basically the novel would have to be a huge degree more successful and large more largely read more widely read than it was for that sort of second 
kind of angry discussion around the book to occur. Um, I think there's people who would really hate this novel while acknowledging um, a lot of its qualities, but would say like, this reflects a really poisonous outlook that is counterproductive and undoes a lot of the great work that diversity initiatives have done in this country. I would disagree with them and I would be able mm -hmm. to debate with them, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think the more people read it, the, the bigger the chances that it's going to be, you know, not, not like edgily provocative and like in a, in a sort of Brett Easton Ellis way, but in a way that's, you know, have I built my life upon a foundation of lives, lies. Well, <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, again, the, the respect for the reader and the respect that the reader should give back to the author that it's it's a full length novel. It's 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 an artistic construction. Um, it's not a policy paper. Um, it's not a work of creative nonfiction um, to take it on its own terms and to be open enough um, to maybe perhaps to perceive that there are some some stinging comments and there's an acidity to the book that's that's deserved um and that again the age of social media the age of branding and affiliation um and oh yeah i'm with it i'm cool i'm down with that i'll hashtag that without actually unpacking or thinking about how you're implicated in that or what that means and can that be troubling um so i i i really agree with you in that um you have to come at it honestly as a reader, as an individual. Um, and yeah. that sometimes that can make you uncomfortable. Um, and I think that's why, you know, fiction can be so useful is that sense of combat that you so often get in any non-fictional form, whether it's an essay or a tweet uh, is gone. Like this mm -hmm. book isn't fighting with you when you're reading it, you're, you're interrogating it. Yeah. I, I really, really, value your work and the last time we talked in ottawa we were talking a sort of a digression to the long essay curry that was published with with coach house we were talking about uh nick sharma i believe who's a an author a culinary expert and and author of, of books about food who lives in the united states and i had asked you if you intended to continue to write uh, about culinary culture about about uh, non-literary matters um are you working on further nonfiction projects still? Do you have anything in development? You know, at the moment, I don't. I did think, I mean, the the pandemic sort of undid an idea I had about sort of doing something that was more food and travel-based okay. writing. And ultimately, I've come out of those years not really, I don't know if I have the chops to be a good culinary writer and a good cultural writer. And certainly not a commercially viable and successful culinary writer. It's, it's a really different toolkit. And I think right now it requires either a very traditionalist or an extremely progressive outlook on what food yeah. culture is or should be in terms of having um, a book that gets published and people get excited about. And I don't have either of those viewpoints. Yeah. Um, and I mean, getting down to it too, I don't know how great I am at writing about the experience of eating something. It's, it's a very specific tactile skill. And in Curry, in my, in my long essay, I managed to get, it, I, there's a lot of cheating in that book in terms of it being yeah. a food book. It's about history and books yeah. to such a large degree. And I think I almost 
slightly fooled myself into thinking that I had a set of skills that I don't. But in terms of larger nonfiction projects, I would really like to write something about books and literature, like in, in the sort of like Michael Durda or Alberto Manguel vein of like books that books that mean something to me, like a sort of sub, something not not like a maudlin memoir, but something that has to do with the uh, urgency of old books in a way and and the a way of reading old books differently in the now. Um, that is a resolutely uncommercial proposition, though. And that's another thing I have to, as a working writer, I do have to think about this is, can I afford to do this with my time? And mm-hmm. the moment right now, the idea of writing, you know, two or three chapters of that in a proposal and the potential size of the advance, the chilling answer is no, I can't. But And if I am going to spend time on something that, that makes no sense, it'll always be literary fiction mm-hmm. because literary fiction will never make any sense, but it'll always be my favorite thing to do. Now you also write the Nathan Ripley books. And are you working on another one of those? I'm working on a, on a horror project, okay. which is, okay. which skews. I, it's very much in between thriller world and literary world. And I think that though, that would be under Naben Ruthnam. I, I have a recent novella help me that's also under Naben Ruthnam, but for some reason, those feel closer to my Ben Ruthermark than than the Nathan Ripley thrillers, which are yeah. those are psychological thrillers that are very much what they are. I, I yeah. love both those books, but they are I can see the the answer mainly to like whether who's writing which book is a uh, will a Nathan Ripley reader like this book, like a typical Nathan Ripley reader that I imagine. And often the case is no. Like I think there might not be overlap, but I like to hope there is, you know, mm-hmm. some sector of my psychological thriller audience who likes my other stuff. But I, again, don't want to inflict a book that someone doesn't want on them. One of, one of the pleasures, uh, Naben, is watching what you will do next. And because you are a writer who's polyvalent, you you write in different genres and different registers mm-hmm. um, with different, different audiences in mind. And perhaps, um, you know what you want to do best and, and you have to be um, driving it. But I think sometimes you don't give yourself enough credit for, for the power of your, your ability to observe and to critique. And I really, really do hope that you continue to do nonfiction works in addition to the literary fiction. Um, Thank you. Because uh, you are very accomplished across a number of genres and styles. I so appreciate having the chance to talk to you and to to chat about this book today, like to to talk about A Hero of Our Time, uh, which is, I think, a very significant new novel this year in 2022. You do touch upon the pandemic. It's woven into the narrative. So it was obviously written recently, like in, in recent times, perhaps as we sign off. Do you have any experiences to reflect upon about how the, the manuscript may have changed or evolved in light of the imposed distance or the realities of, of the COVID pandemic? Oh yeah. It had a very direct impact because um, the initial, like, a big coup that um, Olivia, the sort of antagonist character, the novel pulls off has to do with distance education and a campus, like having no people on it. This was, you know, my brilliant idea before the pandemic occurred. And of course it's just became banal reality at every campus across across the world, or at least across this continent for a long time. So I had to adjust to the pandemic for that. Um, you know, and it was 
it made me wish that somehow the book had magically come out a few months earlier because mm-hmm. it would have seemed that I'd predicted something. But um, the guts of it were always going to be about how money, how corporations can exploit a moment, a very human moment. And I think that that is a, that was the pandemic's lesson to this book is, is um, reality is a thing that will always have to be contended with, even in, even in the most um, abstract wanderings of literary fiction. Again, thank you so much for, for our chat today, for our conversation and for the book. That was Peter Schneider in conversation with Nabam Ruthnam. His novel, A Hero of Our Time, and a novella, Help Meet, were both published this year. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Thank you.